It's four o'clock, so let's just begin as we are on time. Um, so today we have the great privilege of having Kristen Fortney joining us uh, on the Longevity Biotech Show. Kristen is the CEO and co-founder of BioAge Labs, uh, one of the most interesting uh, longevity companies out there. They use AI and machine learning techniques to find anti-aging drugs. So um, we'll get more into that later, just some housekeeping uh, things. Uh, we're going to start off with maybe 30 minutes of uh, prepared questions. And then afterwards, we'll open up for audience uh, Q&A. And uh, if anybody in the audience comes up to, uh, to ask a question, just uh, FYI, we are recording this and posting it later on, um, on YouTube. So uh, just yeah, keep that in mind that uh, we can use, if you come up, uh, that means you consent to your, uh, your voice uh, and uh, I guess photo being uh, showing up in YouTube videos. So um, let's just uh, start right away uh, with some introductions. So I'll go first and then uh, Robert, you can go second and then uh, Kristen. So um, myself, I'm Nathan. I'm uh, the editor and author of the Longevity Market Cap newsletter. It's a once a week sort of roundup of uh, different developments in the longevity industry. And uh, I'm also the founder of Longevity List which is a uh, website where people can go find jobs, uh, companies, and investors in longevity biotech. So, uh... so yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm Robert. Uh, I work at uh, currently at the Aging Biology Research Lab based uh, short distance outside of Montreal in uh, Quebec, Canada. And I have about 10 years of experience as a bioinformatics uh, and research software uh, engineer in both academia and industry. In the last uh, year or so, I've been getting more involved in um, aging biology research proper and in the longevity biotechnology scene. Hey guys, uh, Kristen Fortney, co-founder and CEO of BioAge, a clinical stage biotech company developing drugs that treat aging and diseases of aging. And before starting the company, my background is in aging biology and machine learning. Uh, at Stanford and the University of Toronto. Okay, great. So um, one of the reasons why we wanted to have Kristen uh, on the show was, uh, for, for one reason was basically, we're trying to provide sort of a roadmap uh, based on her experience building BioAge so that other founders who are, you know, um, interested in getting into longevity biotech or the anti-aging uh, drug discovery space uh, that they might have a sort of template or is a way to learn from her experience. So maybe we can just start off with uh, the present. So Kristen, uh, what is BioAge and uh, what are you guys doing right now? Yeah, sure. So right now, um, well, I guess what is BioAge and, and really we're built on some pretty special human data sets um, because you know humans age on the scale of decades. I think it's important to have molecular data that span decades to understand aging. So we've made a bet on um, investing heavily into uh, building some really unique aging cohorts. So we have blood samples collected up to 50 years ago when people were healthy and middle-aged that have 
electronic health records tied to those samples, tracking those people for their entire lives. Um, and that means that you can go into those samples and you can measure everything with modern technologies, the, the proteome, the metabolome, the transcriptome, and see what predicts the future, right? See what predicts future longevity, see what differentiates those people who go on to live 90 plus in great health from the rest of us who don't, <laughs> what's different at the molecular level. So, so we really see as BioAge is being built on top of this molecular map of human aging that we've built. And what we're focused on at BioAge is sort of going after those targets, one after the other, uh, and focusing first on those targets emerging from our map that are the closest to translation. So we're actually focused first on in licensing um, drugs that already exist that hit targets in our aging map where we can go immediately into um, a clinical trial in older people. And uh, just over the past year, uh, we've brought in our first three such assets, clinical stage assets, and we just kicked off our first uh, phase two trials uh, very recently. Yeah, yeah, the news was was amazing. Uh, I should congratulate you, I forgot to, but yes, congratulations on bringing two phase two trials uh, to, to the clinic, which is incredible because I, I think most people don't even realize that this is happening, right? These are drugs that BioHage has identified as potentially, um, you know, modulating aging and they're being tested in humans uh, in phase two. And uh, I feel like more people should know about this, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's really cool that you guys are doing this and uh, congrats once again on, on getting to this stage. It's, it's uh, incredible uh, work that you guys are doing, but um, yeah, going back to, to, uh, to BioAge. So you guys are, uh, leveraging these, uh, these uh, biobanks data samples, right? I, I think this is really interesting that, um, that they have this. Can you, can you uh, tell us a little bit more about what's in this biobank? Yeah, for sure. So it's really longitudinal samples collected over, over time. And it is blood samples because that's pretty much all you can get from a healthy person. <laughs> and these were collected when people were still healthy uh, and middle-aged and then, you know, over and over again. Uh, for the rest of their lives. And tied to each of these samples are, are really detailed health records that have information on, you know, how long people live after their samples were taken, um, what diseases they ultimately got when they were older. But also um, some of our cohorts have great health span variables too. So at every subsequent exam that these people went to, they measured things like their walking speed, their grip strength, their cognitive function. Uh, and we're very interested in, in looking at the molecular differences that predict not only lifespan increases, but also health span increases. Yeah, I think that's really important, the uh, measurement of cognitive function, because, uh, you know, health span is really important. You can live very long, but if you have cognitive impairment, the quality of life, uh, if you have, you know, these sort of diseases, neurodegenerative diseases can be very low towards the end of your life. So. I think that's really important. Um, maybe we can go back now because this is a, a little interesting. We've covered what BioAge is doing now, what you guys, your, your approach, but uh, let's go back to the beginning to you know trace your path to the present. So maybe I can uh, start by asking you, what were you doing right before you started? Right before I started, um, I was a postdoc at Stanford working on the genetics of exceptional human longevity. So studying what's different about the genomes of people who make it to 100 or 110. And there's a common theme here, right? Like I think 
the low hanging fruit in the longevity space is to copy what's already working because <laughs> there already are some humans who are living really long and really healthy, right? So we know that it's possible. And um, there's a bunch of great examples. One of my favorites, you might've heard, um, Leela Denmark, she was a super centenarian, so lived to be over the age of 110, um, but she was actually a practicing pediatrician until the age of 104. So that means, you know, fully mentally capable, physically capable. And I think it's really exciting that, you know, it's possible to achieve that within you know, normal human variation. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point because, you know, a lot of people in the longevity community are like thinking really far ahead and they're saying, oh, you know, let's, you know, extend a uh, maximum lifespan, which, you know, which would be a good thing too. But even just as you said, the low hanging fruit, if we can just increase people's uh, medium uh, lifespans, because, you know, you know, average lifespan is maybe you know, 80, 80 years now. And uh, just looking at, you know, the maximum, there's a huge gulf between the median and the maximum and all the different things that we can do to improve health span. I think that really is the low hanging fruit. But um, OK, so uh, you were a postdoc at Stanford. And then uh, what sort of inspired you or what was the catalyst to say, OK, hey, I'm going to start a company? Um, I always thought it would be really a really valuable experiment to see what you could measure at midlife that would predict ultimate longevity. And you can get biomarkers from that. You can get drug targets from that. And I would say there were sort of two different kinds of scientific findings that, that inspired the idea. Um, one was, you know, this was sort of, uh, you know, this was, I guess, only a couple years after the great methylome work by, uh, you know, Steve Horvath and Trey Eidecker had come out showing that from these genome-wide data sets, you could find, build great predictors of chronological age. Um, so just, you know, I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with, with that work, but prior to um, these discoveries, people had looked at a handful of, you know, quote unquote, biomarkers of aging, like telomere length that had very low predictive power for your age or your future health. And uh, the fact that if you looked at these sort of genome-wide data sets and got all that predictive power out of that, that was, you know, point one <laughs> that was really exciting to me. Um, the other finding that I thought was really exciting was some early work of Richard Miller, where he'd done these lifelong experiments in mice, and he'd measured just a handful of things at midlife, things like their you know, T-cell counts, et cetera, and showed that they predicted mortality. And I wanted to sort of combine those two ideas, right? So let's, let's build predictors not of your chronological age, which you can already measure, but let's build predictors of, of mortality. Um, and I thought that would be a way both to um, find biomarkers and identify interesting drug targets. So that's kind of the, the scientific inspiration. Okay, great. Yeah. So you had the, the inspiration for bioage, but then how did you actually go about uh, building something that would be investable? Because um, I remember in one of your interviews, you were talking about how uh, a lot of the early work in this kind of uh, approach for a biotech company could be done on, you know, just your laptop. And I think this is really a, a powerful idea because a lot of people who are potential uh, co-founders in longevity biotech, they're thinking, oh, I need to, you know, set up a lab or like, you know, have a lot of money and put it into my startup before I can even get started. But um, maybe you could... Uh, dig a little deeper into uh, this idea of, you know, uh, virtual biotech and, and CROs and this kind of stuff. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially for bioinformatics right now, right? Like, I mean, there is so much public data out there that you can build to identify and test hypotheses. There are, you know, exomes for tens of thousands of people through the UK Biobank. There's all this public genetic and there's microarray data for millions of samples on all these human diseases. So there's an awful lot you can do with just your laptop. And um, I think the CRO landscape, which you also mentioned, has also been evolving very rapidly to the point where there are a lot more virtual biotechs right now. So you don't have to actually make a huge infrastructure investment, uh, buy a lot of your own equipment from the get-go. Um, you can just pay to have some proof of, proof of concept experiments done to, uh, to de-risk uh, further work. Right. So when you started BioAge um, and you were trying to get to your, I guess, first proof of concept or, or something that you could pitch to investors, um, can you share like how much money you had to put in, like your own money into into the company? It's okay if, if you don't want to share particular, you know, numbers or whatever. But I'm just I'm just curious if you. Oh sure, yeah. It wasn't it wasn't that much. It was between five and ten thousand dollars, I think, that I'd put in personally. And this was sort of why, well, I was a postdoc and um, and and you know, and, and mostly supported by by data analysis. That is amazing because <laughs> i think the the general idea when i when i put this question out on twitter i got many responses saying okay you need at least a hundred thousand dollars to get started but uh you know this is like an order of magnitude smaller which is uh, a, a much uh much more uh, achievable goal for people who are i guess straight out of grad school or uh, or postdocs or stuff like that so that's that's really encouraging um so okay so then you have started BioAge, uh, you had this idea, then uh, the next step, I guess, was you found this, uh, this data set or this uh, biobank data. Uh, where did you go from there? Like, how did you go about de-risking and then uh, figuring out how to, uh, I guess, expand and possibly take investor money? Uh, maybe you can tell us about these internet. Yeah, for sure. And just to mention too, like I think there is a lot of seed and pre-seed money available for promising science that could have potentially a huge payoff. Um, geography does matter a lot, right? So, so BioAge was funded in in Silicon Valley, and um, I, I came from Toronto. That's where I did my PhD, and, and and probably wouldn't have been able to raise there because it's just you know very still location dependent at the time, and, and hopefully that's changing. <laughs> But it's still true that there's tremendous benefits to being, you know, located in certain areas and working on cool science. Um, so BioAge, yeah, it started off as really just sort of this hypothesis that if we built these data sets, there would be all this signal there for really future longevity. And this is kind of, you know, kind of bold, right? Like it's saying that I, I can look at, you know, your proteome, your, your metabolome, and I will see signals of something that has happened happening 20 years later, 30 years later, <laughs> you know, and 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 the sort of phase one of the company was going out and partnering with uh, the right biobanks, even just finding the right biobanks, because it's pretty rare, actually, like everyone is biobanking today, but there are not a lot of people who are biobanking healthy samples decades ago, uh, as well as following up those individuals for the rest of their lives. So, so sort of finding those samples, getting them profiled and showing that there was signal there. That's sort of like phase one. Okay, great. And then, I guess, uh, phase two, when you started to get traction and um, 
pitching to investors. I, I'm really curious about this because uh, BioAge, if I remember correctly, was started maybe at the end of 2015. So I guess that was, you know, six years ago or whatever, uh, five years ago. And um, back then, I'm guessing longevity wasn't as big as it is today. Uh, what was the experience like pitching this idea of like treating aging with drugs and, uh, you know, this aging biomarker stuff? Like how did how did uh, investors take this? Did they think you were crazy or? Yeah, yeah, great question. <laughs> oh, and just, just for clarity too, so, so this phase one of actually profiling all these samples from the biobanks, that was done with seed money. So this was after after raising seed for BioAge. And, um, you know, like I, I, I was, you're right, like it was, it was a lot earlier in the longevity space. Uh, it was still after Calico. <laughs> so Calico's big announcement with, with all their, all their funding had been, um, I think, pretty recent in history. And I think that was probably critical to getting BioAge funded because people were becoming aware that there was this huge opportunity here. And um, there was at that time, there still is this sort of growing sense that the science is ready and it's time for translation. And, um, you know, there's all sorts of different investors in, in biotech and in longevity. And uh, I raised from tech investors for the seed. And I think they appreciated the fact that we were not going after a particular mechanism, a particular target, but really taking a data-based approach that has the potential to find, you know, multiple different mechanisms. Right. And so it seems like... Uh, um tech investors, especially in you know, Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, are very interested in longevity. I feel like uh, traditional pharma, like definitely like big pharma, uh, they're still slowly coming on to this. But um, you did uh, announce recently a partnership with uh, Amgen, which is really cool. Um, maybe uh, you can tell us about uh, this, this strategy of um, repurposing uh, drugs that are already out there as like your, your low hanging fruit. And then uh, maybe you could also follow on with uh, your strategy uh, with the partnership with HitGen doing um, actual novel um, compound. Yeah, for sure. So, so just to add to your comment, yeah, I think pharma and traditional biotech they don't know what to think about aging yet, right? I think once there's like a first clinical success for a drug that is definitely targeting a mechanism of aging, that's going to change everything, but, but we're not there yet. Um, and in the meantime, I feel like there is a lot of low-hanging fruit just because there are a lot of things that are going to impact aging. And frankly, very few have the, of them have been tried in the clinic. Um, so, you know, our, our philosophy is always low-hanging fruit, easy things first, <laughs> you know, one impossible thing at a time. Um, so we, we did make, you know, we, we built our map of targets on top of our biobanks and we are deliberately going after, you know, those mechanisms that are the most de-risked. And that means there's already a, a drug out there that has been through phase one that we know is safe, that hits its target. And we want to bring in all of those that we think might work and go, you know, as quickly as we can to a, a pretty lean, pretty efficient clinical trial because the clinic is a risky place to be. So I would like us to have a lot of different mechanistic bets. Um, where we can get a human efficacy signal before too long. Um, and uh, to your second question, uh, we did recently announce a partnership with HitGen. Um, you know, if I had to guess, like how many things we were going to in license over time that might work, uh, I would say, you know, 
maybe around 10, certainly no more than 20. And then after that, I think it's important to move on to novel targets. So this is an important point too, right? So I, I, where the field of aging is today, I feel like we know an awful lot about how animals age. There are, are hundreds of things you can do to a worm to make it live longer <laughs> or, or a fly or a yeast, um, most of which probably don't matter for us because the species are so different. Um, but again, like a first way to use our platform, our human data platform is as an overlay on, you know, everything, all, all aging biology that is known, right? Because if there's, you know, a gene you can knock out that makes a worm live longer, that by itself doesn't excite me that much. But if that same gene has an ortholog in humans with a very strong association to mortality, well, now I'm really excited, right? <laughs> um, so I think that those are the easy targets to go after, those ones that have both a human and an animal signal for aging. But then I do think there are gonna be a lot of important mechanisms for aging that are human specific. Um, like even mice, black six mice, which are the, you know, inbred mice that most biologists use, they die pretty much exclusively of cancer. They don't get Alzheimer's on their own. Uh, heart disease is not a bottleneck to their survival. Um, so I think that the things that are the most important for their aging are going to be different from the things that are most important for ours. And while we're focused at BioAge, you know, most of our focus, 80%, I would say, is on in-licensing, we do want to start to explore um, some of the human-specific targets emerging from the data as well. Cool, yeah, that's great. Um, so maybe coming back to these clinical trials. So uh, you have two uh, phase two assets. Um, one of them is uh, targeting unexplained anemia, and the other one um, is uh, looking at, I guess, uh, immunosenescence in COVID-19 patients or elderly COVID-19 patients. So it looks like the name of the game for longevity biotech companies is to choose these sort of low hanging fruit uh, indications first, because obviously, you know, the FDA does not have uh, an improved indication for aging, but um, what do you see as like the regulatory pathway going forward to bringing some of these drugs to, uh, I guess I would say the general uh, population, uh, people who are aging, which is everyone, but don't have like uh, a defined sort of uh, disease um, or, or age-related disease. Uh, so yeah, I was just wondering what you think about that. Like how how do these sort of drugs uh, get to people like Yeah, for sure. So, so a few points there. One is that while the FDA doesn't recognize aging as a disease, I, I don't really see that as a bottleneck to progress. Um, because if they do, when they do, I should say, you know, it'll probably still involve a huge trial <laughs> um, that, that where people take your drug for a long time, uh, which is, you know, amounts to a lot of money, right? And, and for a mechanism that you're taking to the clinic for the very first time, you don't really want to bet the farm on that mechanism. So I think it you know, it always makes sense. It will always make sense to go into an initial proof of concept indication where you can be lean, where you can, you know, have a trial with not too many people. That's not going to take too much time. You'll get that first human de-risking signal quickly. Um, and that would be true even, I think, if we were a diabetes company, you know, because those trials can be pretty um, long and expensive as well. And the, the second question about how, um, yeah, how does it ultimately get to, to everybody, right? And, and uh, 
there's a few examples you can point to. And I think that ultimately you'd want an age, every aging drug to follow a development path, something like uh, a statin has, right? So, so th those kind of are prescribed like aging drugs right now. They're given to people who ne don't necessarily have disease. They're, they're over 40, you know, they have a couple of, of biomarkers, risk factors, and they're prescribed uh, statins. Uh, so I think that that's, you know, a historical precedent. <laughs> and there are some examples like that. And, and how statins, of course, were first approved is that they were first tested for a very narrow indication, uh, familial hypercholesterolemia, and the indication was, was widened over time. Um, and that's a, a similar kind of path, I think, that we will have to take with, uh, with our mechanisms. Okay, yeah, great. Um, okay, so we're rounding up to almost half an hour, so... I just want to ask a couple of quick questions before we open up for uh, audience Q&A. Um, so do you have any sort of words of advice or, or maybe uh, things that um, potential longevity biotech founders uh, could, could do or not do? Maybe that's more important uh, when they're uh, thinking about building these, uh, a company in longevity. Um, well, first of all, definitely go and found a company in longevity. <laughs> the space needs more founders. There's so much low-hanging fruit. Um, I, I would love to see more people getting in there. And there's so many opportunities that just need good people driving them. Uh, in terms of things to do or not do, that those are always long lists. <laughs> um, I mean, just, you know de-risk at every stage, I guess, right, is, is, is the good advice. Uh, and, and make sure that you survey the landscape and know... Oh, I would say too, you know, don't necessarily, like a lot of people I think who are coming in, not from biology, um, trust the literature too much. <laughs> so step one is if you read something exciting in a science journal, you definitely want to replicate it in your own hands before you, uh, before you commit to it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've seen some uh, pretty brutal uh, paper retractions when I, when I did my research on uh, various aspects of uh, longevity. Um, okay, so uh, maybe just another quick question before we open up for audience Q&A. Um, is there anything that we can do to help uh, you right now? I know uh, you previously, you know, posted some, some jobs, so maybe you're hiring. Uh, I guess maybe you're not raising money right now because uh, you just recently... Uh, raised your Series C, but um, yeah, if, if there's anything that we can do to help uh, your mission or anybody in the audience can do to help your mission, I just uh, give you the floor right now to... Uh... Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, so we're not fundraising, but we are doing a ton of hiring. <laughs> and it's always, uh, you know, it's great when everybody is aligned on the mission. So um, we like that a lot um, at BioAge. So to definitely go check out our, our careers page. There's lots of different roles that we're looking for right now for people with science backgrounds, computational backgrounds, uh, clinical backgrounds. Okay, great. So everybody who's listening to this right now in the audience, or afterwards on YouTube, go check out uh, the careers page on uh, BioH if you're interested in, in joining the, an awesome uh, longevity biotech company. So uh, yeah, I think we're basically there. Oh, maybe I'll ask one other question since uh, I had a little bit of time. Um, so reason, 
the co-founder of Repair Biotechnologies and also the author of ByAging.org. He will periodically write uh, a request for longevity startups. So um, just like a, a blog post about things that are maybe uh, overlooked in the longevity industry uh, that he hopes that other startups would pursue. I, I would wonder um, what you think about this. Like, uh, do you have any ideas or, or requests for startups uh, in the longevity space? Maybe not specifically therapeutic, but maybe some sort of infrastructure thing that uh, you think would really help either bioage or just uh, the longevity biotech uh, industry. That's an inter interesting question. I've got a, a whole long list of things. <laughs> well, I mean, point one is that like pretty much everything exciting in longevity science is currently not being translated by anybody. So I think there's a lot of opportunities out there with the possible exception of senescence, you know, which I think there's a lot of activity around that specifically. Um, not that we've had traction yet, right? So even there, you know, um, but some of the, I would say, particularly under underfunded, potentially high impact areas are um, I think organ transplantation, xenotransplantation is a really exciting area that can do things at a, you know, a larger scale. Um, I think you mentioned infrastructure as well. And I think a lot of people outside the field don't know how old it is to purchase old mice. Because <laughs> ultimately, if you have um, a longevity therapy, you've got to put it into an old mouse, an old animal to see if it's working. And you literally cannot buy these <laughs> because no one else is a customer, you know? Um, and so why would, you know, Charles River or Jax or these, these mouse providers even age them that long? So uh, that's, you know, something we've built out ourselves at BioAge. We've got a bunch of really old mice, but I think that's a barrier to a lot of other people in the field being able to go in and, and test their hypotheses efficiently. So just, you know, on, on the, that, that's an important component that uh, I would love to see someone develop a CRO there. Yes, I totally agree. I've thought about this a lot as well, because I remember looking at some of these prices at uh, Jackson Lab or, or I think the, the subsidy at the NIA, and it's like uh, $300,000 to do sort of like a, a mouse lifespan study. Um, and I think that's extremely, it's <laughs> extremely <nuts>. prohibitive. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's crazy. It's totally crazy. And I think someone will eventually crack this this uh, problem. I think uh, uh, like Mousera slash IAM was like an initial sort of foray into this problem. Uh, but I think someone else will, will figure it out eventually with maybe automation or something like that. Or at least I hope so. <laughs> okay, so uh, it's uh, 4.30 now. Just to reset the room, uh, we have Kristen Fortney here with us, CEO and co-founder of BioAge Labs, a uh, company that leverages AI and machine learning to find uh, drugs that modulate aging. Um, so... Uh, Without any further ado, I guess I'll, I'll switch it over to Robert. I think he had a couple of quick questions as well, and then and then we'll open up for for. for... Yeah, thanks, Nathan. <clears throat> so, Chris, nice to have you here. Um, just a couple of questions. Uh, these could easily take uh, <laughs> could have whole separate calls for these two, but um, maybe you can just share your quick thoughts on these. Uh, so. <laughs> I got one hard question and two uh, possibly also hard questions. Which one do you want first? <laughs> you said they're all the same, so <laughs> whichever you like. All right. I, I don't know which one's which here. So 
I'll start with the uh, I'll start with the easier of the hard questions, I guess. Uh, so in another interview, you were on on uh, Jake's uh, Pod of Jake uh, interview uh, or podcast some some time ago, and you mentioned Greg Egan as an inspiration for why you got interested in uh, longevity and that kind of stuff. Uh, can you can you just share for like a minute, like what was it? Which one of his books? Uh, how does the current longevity uh, scene square with uh, where you see this going, like in the science fictional direction? And yeah, just just a bit more about that. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I've always been interested in aging, and I've always uh, been a you know an avid sci-fi fan. <laughs> and uh, Greg Egan in particular, or early Greg Egan, I should say, was very good at making reasonable assumptions and then sort of following them through. Um, I like a, a lot of his work, maybe diaspora is, is my favorite. Um, but there's a lot of, yeah. I mean, sci-fi in general, right? Uh, there's a lot of boundaries, I think, that we can, you know, transcend with science. And that's exciting. And we should do that. So diaspora is the, is the book that, I, that you like the most? Probably my number one favorite. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the next question I had was about uh, AI in drug discovery. So uh, Bruce Booth, for example, from uh, Atlas Venture, partner of Atlas Venture and blogs at Lifestyle VC. He has uh, an interesting post uh, from a couple years ago called Four Decades of Hacking Biotech and Biology Still Eats Everything. Something along these lines. Uh, where he, he essentially argues that uh, despite all of the advances in uh, computer-based approaches and, and big data, high throughput, uh, it's still just one piece of the puzzle. Uh, do you think that maybe the AI angle is, is perhaps a little bit too uh, hyped up sometimes? And, and like how, how would you answer the, the critics or the skeptics in this area? Yeah, for sure. I, I think it can be too hyped up, but but honestly, I think that that is just how you do modern science now, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, you know, if you really want to know what's going on in a human or another animal, you have to be looking at genome scale things, whether it's the genome itself or the proteome, the methylome, the metabolome. And these are data sets of a scale where you can't just stare at them and figure out what's the most important. Of course, you use statistics and of course, you use machine learning and I think that these tools are going from being, you know, overhyped, you know, a decade ago, maybe even five years ago to being kind of in the water <laughs> um, because that that's just how you analyze these data sets at all. Um, I think there has been a bit of a backlash in the past because some people dove into the AI side of it without um, um, without carrying that through to the biology. Like biology is still really hard <laughs> and there's a lot of constraints imposed by what you can actually test, what you can actually do, how much you can understand actually about a biological system. Um, but I, I guess I feel like the field is past that now and that these are just, you know, the tools of modern biology or will be, you know, the established tools of modern biology in a couple more years. All right, fair enough. And my last question has to do with uh, research roadmaps. So um, the folks behind the Healthy Longevity Challenge uh, if you actually go to healthylongevitychallenge.org, uh, which is affiliated with the U U.S. National Academy of Medicine and some other major organizations around the world, uh, they're working on a global roadmap for healthy longevity. And uh, also there's uh, something at the NIH called the uh, Bridge to AI, 
part of the Common Fund. And also, uh, Eric Morgan, your co-founder, is listed as co-author on a paper discussing um, identifying biomarkers for biological age. So I guess I'm just wondering if uh, if you're aware of or involved, if BioAge is involved beyond that in any way with any of these roadmaps, uh, like trying to work with the rest of the longevity research and biotechnology community and, and biomedical research more broadly. I'm not aware of those um, particular initiatives, but we are involved in some other industry initiatives to try to build. I mean, I think this is really important for BioAge and for other companies as well, right? Like, like for example, our first drug, which we're testing in um, the anemia of aging. That first indication is not aging itself, but we are, you know, giving drug to an older population with functional deficits for three months. So there might be something going on there. <laughs> and I would love to um, have a biomarker that told me if we were rejuvenating people, you know, beyond just, um, uh, you know, looking at the primary outcome for the trial. And so we are building for that. Like, for example, in that trial, you know, we're doing full proteomes before and after treatment. And that means that we can you know, compare it to our human cohort data. Um, everyone has, you know, a clinical trial, you know, pared down version of a Fitbit as well. So we'll be sort of collecting continuous movement data. But but just to, so, so that just to be clear, the cohorts that we've built, I think are also really useful for building biomarkers of aging, right? Because you can actually build a, a predictor of incident mortality, something that predicts, you know, how many years of life are left, right? And that's exactly the kind of marker that you can then use to assess um, whether the people in the trial are being rejuvenated to some extent by the drug. Uh, so we, you know, I don't think we have things that are ready yet, like it's a beta version, but I'm, I'm very excited by that area of aging biology and I think it's important. Awesome, looking forward to uh, what BioAge will come out with in, in the near term. All right, Nathan, back to you. Uh, those were all my questions. Okay, great. Thank you, Kristen and Robert. Okay, so we're, we're going to open up for audience Q&A. If you raise your hand, uh, we can let you up to the stage. Just FYI, we are recording this. So if you come up, uh, that means you consent to us uh, using your voice recording and I guess photo recording of, well, of your photo on the app. Um, so while we're waiting for people to raise their hands, uh, maybe I'll just ask another uh, follow-on question to Robert's last question. Um, so this whole idea of having a biomarker that sort of predicts, I guess, mortality, um, how do you see the roadmap for something like that being accepted by the FDA? Because I feel like, you know, the, if you look at the history with statins and uh, using, uh, I guess, cholesterol as, um, as a uh, surrogate biomarker, that, that could take some time. I, I'm just wondering because I don't really know the answer, but uh, what you think about uh, how long it might take for, for something to become accepted. Yeah, that's a great question. I think these things take way too long. <laughs> I mean, hopefully we'll see bone mineral density being accepted as a biomarker for osteoporosis as well, but, but importantly too, right? These things like cholesterol and, and bone mineral density are, I think, actually have a lot less predictive power than some omics biomarkers that could be built. But the, but that's just such a long process to get these things approved. So I, I guess I feel like they're going to have scientific value and, and you know, de-risking value for, for a company in the very near term. Um, but in terms of when they'll, they'll actually be approved as a surrogate endpoint, yeah, I think that's a long way away. Yeah, and it, it's just like, 
I'm trying to visualize how it's going to happen because it's like, hey, we have this biomarker or, or it would be like some sort of, you know, composite biomarker. And you're going to tell the FDA, hey, you know, we have this neural net that predicts mortality. This is the thing that you're going to use for for uh, the kind of, or, you know, primary outcome measurements or something. I, it's just like, I feel like it's going to take some convincing. That's right. Yeah, the near term stuff that I still think could be really important is, is I think, less ambitious, but still could be really important for the field. Like, like for example, um, today, you know, if you wanted to run a trial, a clinical trial for frailty, um, the approvable endpoint you would have to use is a six minute walk distance. And that scares everybody off from doing development there. Because <laughs> six minute walk distance is incredibly noisy. Um, it's incredibly dependent on who is administering the test. It's just this, this one-off thing that you measure, right? So I am more optimistic that in the near term that, you know, these continuous wearables signals where you're actually collecting movement data, you know, over several months will lead to something much more robust that could become like a frailty um, pivotal trial endpoint. And that, I think, would be really important for, for drug discovery and development in that area. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with that. Okay, awesome. Thank you for the for that answer. Um, let's take some uh, audience questions. Uh, Daniel Ives, uh, we have Daniel here. He's the uh, CEO and co-founder of Shift Bioscience, uh, another longevity biotech company. Uh, so, hi, Kristen. Uh, really interesting to listen to you. I just had uh, two very different questions. So one is, you're you're going to test sort of different low hanging fruit sequentially. Um, the question is, have you thought about testing it all at once? Like basically like fruit salad, that would be the term, you know, just give it, give it everything, like all the different targets. And the second question is like, personally, are you collecting blood samples longer, longitudinally so you can map yourself to, you know, so the work you're doing right now? Yeah, great questions. So I think combination therapies are ultimately where things are going to go. Um, but they are much more challenging from a clinical development perspective. And I guess I also feel that some of the individual targets we're pursuing will have, you know, big strong effects on their own, like we've seen for lots of different age-related diseases. So phase one will be sort of finding out the different pathways you want to modulate that will work to, you know, by themselves. And then phase two can be, you know, building combinatorial therapies of the things that work. And the second question as a great question. <laughs> I haven't actually ran my, my own proteome, but, um, but I'd love to. Yeah. Thanks, Kristen. Okay. Hey guys, thanks for inviting me to the stage. My question is, uh, what's the ETA for reversing gray hair? Thank you. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, I, I'm actually not an expert on that area, so I, I don't really, I don't think any of the mechanisms we're pursuing would do that. You probably want some sort of stem cell thing oriented to scalp, but, um, but yeah, I don't have a good answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, John. Uh, uh... Hi, hi, Kristen. Um, I'm an MD PhD with a PhD in artificial intelligence for bio, and I'm interested in some of the question that Robert kind of touched on earlier, and some of the machine learning. And specifically, I was wondering what you thought of the potential of deep learning uh, for drug discovery and maybe, maybe. Uh, graph neural networks. Um, just kind of what your thoughts are for these uh, as having potential or, or too much hype for drug discovery? 
Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of different parts of drug discovery where AI ML can come in and play a part. Um, so for example, at BioAge, we're focused on um, applying, using these tools really for, for target ID, you know, and other people might use them to build molecules and other people might use them to, uh, you know, inform clinical trials. We actually hope to do the latter um, as well in the future. Um, and really it's a matter of the data, right? <laughs> so for example, um, like transcriptomic data, there are millions of profiles in the uh, public domain. And what that means is that, yes, there's definitely a role for deep neural nets there because these are very noisy data in sort of the original representation and you can you know, clean that right up um, with the right kind of uh, framework, right? But for a lot of biological data sets that are still meaningful and important, um, there's just like maybe tens or hundreds of samples. I mean, there are some sort of transfer learning methods that might be useful there as well. But often for those data sets, simple methods will extract most of the value already. And it'll be sort of like a small return for building something a lot more elaborate. Thanks. Okay, hey, uh, thanks for your question, John. Uh, Guillermo? Great, thanks. And uh, thanks, Kristen, for your time today. Um, you all mentioned briefly how you know difficult it is to think through uh, appropriate surrogate endpoints and just the, the challenges uh, that are sometimes very specific to aging in terms of clinical trial design. But I was wondering how you all are thinking um, simply from a preclinical standpoint about de-risking and validation. And you know, it's probably so you know, disease specific that I know it's, it, maybe it's hard to answer, but I was just, I guess, curious whether you're looking to innovate not just on the discovery side, but also, or how you're thinking through the, the sort of de-risking and, and validation side from you know, in vitro and in vivo assays? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question, actually. So we've been very deliberate about our choices there as well, because we're doing really our initial pathway discovery in humans, but then you want to you want to verify causality, right? So you want to go in into an old mouse and change something and see that it's doing what you hope it's doing. And so many mouse models of disease are not translatable at all. And so we made the deliberate decision to focus on indication areas. Um, that were very translatable from human to mouse that happen in old mice, just like they happen in old humans. And that were, you know, a few other criteria too, right? There had to be good data on them in our human cohorts, et cetera. But, but for example, right, like that's why we like muscle aging because um, old mice, just like old humans, they don't walk as well. They don't run as fast on their wheels uh, when they get older. Um, and that's, you know, basically like a human frailty trial. <laughs> so that's an experiment, you know, we love to do where you take a bunch of old mice and you give them drug and, uh, you know, you can just have the wheels in their cage report automatically, like how many rotations get done each day. <laughs> and then you can see if over time, you know, um, the mice on drug are doing better than the mice not on drug. Um, and that, you know, we think should be translational to the human scenario, both in terms of the biology, but also the measurement, right? Uh, and similarly with it, with immune aging, uh, because, you know, just like us, when mice get older, their immune systems don't respond as well to challenges. They're much more likely to die, you know, in response to influenza or, or COVID. Um, so that's, that's one reason why we're not going after, um, you know, Alzheimer's preclinical models. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And that's, that's very smart. Thanks for that input or, or uh, perspective. Okay, thank you, Guillermo. Uh, next question from Martin. 
Uh, hi, uh, Kristen. Uh, this is kind of tied into the previous question. Um, it sounds like from these biomarkers, you're going to be jumping straight into mouse models. I'm just wondering whether you thought there was any value in um, cell models. So uh, just looking at whether any of these biomarkers you identify individually can do things like extend replication times of cells or uh, stop cellular senescence. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Actually, it's funny you mentioned senescence because we're actually looking at blood blood basically omics <laughs> so including blood proteomics that we actually do see a lot of sasp type factors in our data which i think is really interesting scientifically um yeah so far we, we've focused on having the the in vivo validation as well and if we're doing stuff in cells it's more around the particulars of the target to see that you know the downstream pathway is getting activated in the way that we think it should um just because we want to be sure that it's going to have that organism level sort of degree of effect that we need for the trial. So we haven't, you know, we don't have a lot of high-throughput cell-based assays that we rely on. Thanks. Okay. Uh, do we have any other questions from the audience? If not, maybe I'll ask another question. So, uh, oh, sorry, we have another person here. But I'll ask my question first. So, uh, Kristen, about... Uh, about uh, finding a co-founder. So maybe you can tell us uh, a little bit about the backstory behind um, how you met your co-founder, how you kind of you know decided the division of labor. I know um, your co-founder, uh, Eric Morgan, is also like a, a technical background. Um, and it, so there's this idea, I guess, that some people have in, in for biotech startups that you need one technical co-founder and one like business development co-founder. But I guess there's obvious examples where that, that's not really needed either. So maybe you could just tell us your, your thinking on, on co-founder selection. Yeah, for sure. So Eric, um, well, I've known him for ages, right? Which is, it's always nice to have that pre-existing relationship with the co-founder. So I, I first met my co-founder, Eric, on the math team in high school. <laughs> so a long time ago. And, uh, and we previously worked together um, on uh, even on aging papers um, when we were both at uh, the University of Toronto. Um, so it was really sort of very, very natural for us to, to go into this project together. And we do have some, I guess, redundancy of skill set, you know, in, in a good way. <laughs> I think <laughs> we both uh, care about um, the human data and, you know, the statistics, et cetera, right? That's his background as well. He has a bit more of a medical background, I guess, and I have a bit more of a scientific background. But I, I don't know. I, I feel like you can you can sort of learn it on the go. Like, I don't know that you necessarily need a very sort of well-defined profile type to get started. You just sort of want generalists, right, who are going to dive into whatever needs to be, <laughs> you know, whatever the, the, the problem of the week is, right, and, and be able to execute on that. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, okay, cool. We have uh, Dr. Anwar here. Uh, what's your question? Hi, this is Anwar. Hi, thanks for um, letting me speak here in this group. Um, I have a question about, I don't know if you've done this type of work, but have you looked into um, like time to event analysis in any part of your work, like survival-based um, analyses using machine learning AI models? And if so, then how did you go about evaluating uh, predictors developed through machine learning processes such as like random forest type, random survival forest type models? 
Yeah, a lot of the models that we build are time to event where the event is death, uh, but it can also be the onset of a particular age-related disease. And, um, you know, we, we can evaluate them and compare them in the usual ways internally within a cohort, but we can also, you know, build a model on one cohort and test it on another one that's from a different, you know, ethnicity, geography, et cetera. Right. I think, um, so I was asking more along the lines of, so when you looked at these predictors, how did you go about evaluating them for risk, you know, um, using hazard ratios or any other metrics of those sorts? You mean, how do we build them? Is, is that the question? No, how you went about evaluating the uh, machine learning derived, like important predictors. Yeah, so, so, I, so that's by building a predictor in one data set and, and testing it in another, right? That's going to sort right. of tell you how it does on independent data. Yeah. Right. Did you evaluate the um, predictors like individually or together in terms of like any Cox model type analysis or um, any other types of metrics? Yeah, the usual method methods, which is which is Cox analysis, which is various flavors of sparse regression um, built on, you know, individual proteins as features or sort of, you know, more combined pathways as features. Yeah. Right. OK, thanks. <laughs> There's lots of exciting models in the in the area that can be pretty much used off the shelf. Right. Right. Thanks. OK, thank you for your question, uh, Dr. Anwar. Uh, uh, Paul, let's do Hey, Nathan, another great session. Hey, Kristen, super interesting. Uh, so my question, a little bit higher level. So, you know, in trying to understand the aging problem, there's like, you know, the path of, you know, like the hallmarks of aging paper and that whole line of questioning of just, you know, what biological activities are going on that's causing aging to occur. And then, you know, the other, like another line of inquiry is around like clocks and, you know, finding the perfect biomarker to predict, you know, biological age or mortality as you kind of focus on and, you know, all of like the Horvath line of inquiry. Is there like another or two other kind of like buckets that you think about in terms of framing the aging problem or are those two kind of like lines, you know, holistic? Yeah, I guess I feel like the hallmarks of aging paper is still very much a draft version, you know, like a, I think it was modeled after the hallmarks of cancer paper. And that was sort of when we really understood what cancer was. And I think that for aging biology, it's still a guess. So, so I, you know, and this might be a more unusual stand, but, but I, I, I kind of feel I expect that there are a lot of mechanisms that are important for aging that are really not represented there. And, and, and part of this, I think, is because aging biology, most of the work in aging biology has been in invertebrates. It's been in yeasts, worms, and flies because they live for just a couple of weeks. So it's really easy to change a gene or give them a drug and see what happens to their lifespan. And not that much, you know, has been done in mice, you know, and even less in humans. So I, I guess I feel like those are important mechanisms, but there are going to be more. Um, and and in, in a way, I think it's kind of unified to sort of, you know, these genome-wide analyses, like you mentioned with the clocks, right? Like those are sort of asking in a data-first way, what are the changes that 
predict aging. And I think that those types of analyses might help us come up with, you know, new mechanisms of aging to add to the list. That's cool. So like you're saying clock research is kind of in service of finding new mechanisms. Yes. That's cool. Thanks. Okay. Uh, if there are any other questions, maybe uh, I'll ask another quick one. Um, so there are some people who do uh, work in sort of like uh, young blood rejuvenation or uh, neutral blood re uh, rejuvenation approaches for uh, anti-aging. And um, some, some people in this camp believe that uh, aging is actually like a programmed um, sort of process. Whereas I think most, uh, the majority or consensus view in, as I see it, is uh, that aging is more of a wear and tear process. But uh, I was wondering what you think about this personally, like um, your thoughts from like a high level. I know this is all kind of speculation, but uh, what do you think about uh, aging? Is it uh, mainly wear and tear? Is there some sort of uh, programmed element to it, especially, you know, looking at, you know, clocks and, you know, blood. Yeah, sure. So I don't think that it's programmed in the sense that the programmed aging people talk about it. <laughs> like, like at a high level, like, of course it is, right? Because humans have a certain lifespan, which is different from trees, which is different from worms. So there is a sense in which, you know, DNA constrains lifespan. Um, but not in the sense that we usually talk about a program biological process like, like development, right, where it unfolds according to the exact same schedule every time, <laughs> very sort of low variability in, in how it happens. And aging, of, co of course, is incredibly stochastic. So, so I, yeah, I, I guess I, you know, and there are species where, where it is programmed, right, and it looks completely different, you know, octopus or, or salmon. Um, I, I do think that the young blood stuff is really promising work, but I, I, I guess I don't see it as connected to, um, to programmed aging. Okay, great. Great. Okay, so we're basically at, uh, oh, John, did, did you have a, a question? Uh, I do have, have a follow-up, or not really a follow-up, but just a different question. Uh, earlier, uh, Kristen, in the talk, you mentioned uh, lots of low-hanging fruit in, in the field, and as someone who's relatively new to longevity, you know, I'm, I'm curious about this. And, you know, Nathan has also told me similar things, that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit and kind of founders are the bottleneck. And I'm wondering if this is uh, mostly in regards to like uh, druggable targets. Maybe there are a lot of druggable targets out there that just need someone to pursue, you know, clinical trials for a specific druggable target or uh, developing a new drug. But uh, what just are some more examples of this uh, low-hanging fruit? Yeah, for sure. So there are, as you mentioned, druggable targets. There's a, a bunch of things that work in mice, you know, that are worth trying in humans. And just sort of going down that list systematically, like most of those have not been tried. Uh, we haven't sort of tried to develop those to bring them forward to the clinic. Um, there was this idea that Nathan just mentioned, too, around blood. There's a lot of evidence that um, rejuvenating the blood compartment uh, is going to be an easier scientific challenge that should have you know, systemic benefits, right? Your blood goes everywhere. If you can make your blood young again, that can have a lot of good effects. And maybe you can do that with, you know, a young bone marrow transplant, et cetera, right? So, so there's, I would say the traditional sort of pharma type targets, that's 
probably the lowest hanging fruit because that's, you know, very standard drug development. And, and there's a lot that hasn't been translated. But there's also these other interesting areas, you know, around rejuvenating um, uh, blood stem cells around um, organ transplantation. Uh, those are some examples. Great, thanks. I, I agree. The rejuvenation therapy stuff is also very interesting. So thank you. Okay. Uh, so we're, we're at uh, the one hour mark now. Maybe we'll close it out with just uh, three quick uh, lightning round questions. So these are questions for Kristen. If you can answer them in like a, a sentence or less, and then, and then we'll just close out. Uh, so the first question is, how long do you want to live? <laughs> um, I don't not, you know, I, I don't want to die, right? So <laughs> there's my answer. Okay, so as long as possible, maybe. <laughs> Me too. Okay, um, number two is, uh, what do you think about the Fermi paradox? Why haven't we... <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a different one. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure, right? Yeah, uh, I, I'm sure you guys know all the usual interpretations. Um, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Hopefully uh, it doesn't yeah. mean we're about to, you know, kill ourselves soon, you know, in some oh, massive yes, extinction yes. event. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I hope the, it's not the great filter. That would be the worst answer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. And uh, I guess uh, last question, this one's a little new, but um, if uh, someone gave you a billion dollars right now and said, hey, go out there and accelerate progress in longevity, how would you allocate this kind of Oh yeah, great question. I mean, I you know, uh, I have like a, a project list that I think is interesting, <laughs> and if I had that amount of capital, I think I would go out and explore that space even more aggressively. I think there's a lot of people doing really interesting work in regenerative medicine and aging biology that are really just you know limited by funds right now, where that could be a huge accelerant. Great, awesome. Okay, so uh, once again, I'd like to thank Kristen for coming on the show. It was great conversation. I had lots of great uh, questions from the audience as well. And um, just a reminder, uh, BioAge is currently hiring for many different positions. So if you're looking to join an incredible company in the anti-aging longevity space, uh, they're you know backed by uh, A16C and a bunch of other really, uh, really great um, venture capital firms, uh, yeah, I, I definitely recommend you go check that out on their website. And um, without any, uh, is there anything else that we want to cover? Oh, yes. Uh, next week, uh, we we have uh, Matt Scholes of, um, of uh, Oishin Biotechnologies, a uh, senolytics company using uh, gene therapy. He'll be on the show at our usual time. And uh, yeah, I think I think that's it. I just want to thank Kristen again for coming on the show. It was it was a great privilege talking to you. Thanks, you guys. Great conversation. <laughs>